my my old Bulgarian grandmother's wisdom in in rebutting those uh, those whatabouters. Week of whatabouters. Welcome to Consumer Choice Radio. We're broadcasting here on the Big Talker, 106.7 FM out of Wilmington, North Carolina, every single Saturday at 10 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. I'm one half of your host, Yael Ososki, broadcasting to you from the snowy capital of Austria, Vienna. And I'm joined, as always, by on the line by my uh, also snowed-in uh, partner here on the radio, David Clement, uh, who's out there in Toronto. David, how goes it? Oh, it's going. It's going. Uh, what a week it has been for those who follow U.S. federal politics. Uh, yeah, I don't know. There's going to be a lot to say there. So I won't I won't uh, I won't get too much into that now until you and I both discuss it. But whew, uh, certainly eventful um, when you thought maybe 2021 could cool down a little bit. Um, no, mm-hmm. <laughs> looks like. It looks like 2020 has made her way into 2021 and is wreaking havoc as well. The week that was. Uh, we'll definitely yes. remember this. A lot of stuff happening. We are uh, one week uh, really since the storming of the Capitol, and uh, there's been plenty of arguments about that. We discussed that last week, and if you would like to go back and hear that conversation and you're on the radio, you can go to consumerchoiceradio.com. We have all of our uh, archived links and and all the rest. Obviously, my daughter not happy about that. Uh, but you can find all of our previous interviews as well. And we will have an interview with Mr. Andrew Donaldson of the Ordinary Times Magazine coming up later in the program. Uh, he's a big man on the Big Talker Network on multiple shows, has some great articles and insight on everything that's happened in the past week. Uh, so I think we'll have a good conversation with him and a good spin and definitely a lot that happened, David. I know that uh, we both have been busy with our pens and our writing. Uh, before we dive into the big news, um, let's talk about your your latest articles of note uh, that you wanted to highlight for the listeners. How's that? Yeah, so uh, I was published in the Financial Post, um, so Canada's kind of financial uh, leaning, right leaning uh, national newspaper on what West Virginia has done uh, in regards to rolling out the COVID vaccine and how there's some success there uh, and what Canada can actually learn from that. Um, so obviously not a lot of people think about West Virginia in a positive way. They're usually talking about country roads, take me home, or uh, maybe how the opioid crisis had devastated that state. But for what it's worth, West Virginia seems to have figured it out. And when I say figured it out, I say the, I use the metric of um, they have vaccinated all of their citizens in long-term care. So uh, a big plus in that. And I mean, it's, it's fitting given what you and I talk about. Essentially what they did is they made the priority schedule a lot less rigid. Um, so it, it's not like, okay, we have to get through in the entirety of priority one before we can start priority two, if it was advantageous to start priority two, well, then they just started to do it. Um, so uh, it's, uh, yeah, good good stuff from, um, from West Virginia. They also partnered with pharmacies, which for me, I think is just a no-brainer. I don't know what your take is on this, but of they essentially assigned pharmacies. They said, okay, do you have super cold storage? Yes, check. Do you have a backup generator? Because if the power goes out, you don't want the vaccines to spoil. Uh, check. Okay, well, what we're going to do is we're going to assign a certain number of care homes to you, and you're responsible for rolling out the vaccine to them. And they said, okay, well, we're going to give you uh, – basically, it, it, the way I conceptualize it is it looks a lot like a hub and a spoke of like a tire. So you have your pharmacy in the middle, and they reach out to all the – um, all the uh, care homes and they gave them a month to roll this out and they did it in two weeks. And so, I mean, we have listeners obviously in North Carolina, we have listeners from all over North America. And I'm sure that 
um, many people who are listening are wondering, whoa, hold on a second. Like they vaccinated all of their long-term care residents in two weeks. Like imagine, imagine if cumulatively we as both Canada and the United States had vaccinated all of our long-term care residents. Imagine the, the, what we could start to open up because ultimately that's where most of uh, most of the fatalities are is in these long-term care homes. And so it really is a beacon for how to roll this out, especially given the fact that West Virginia is, is one of the poorest states and it's also one of the most rural states. So we're not talking about some mass vaccination site in a densely populated uh, urban center. We're talking about a very rural state with some serious logistical issues. And so um, yeah, I, I published that in the Financial Post, and hopefully, hopefully, some legislators can uh, can look at that and say, okay, well, maybe, maybe there's something that we can learn from from the Mountain State. Yeah, and uh, we'll, we'll be talking a little bit with uh, Andrew about that later in the program. Yes, he's a mountaineer himself, and yes. has some insight. Interesting. Um, I yeah. guess if we're staying in Canada corner for a sec, uh, I saw an article this morning that. Uh, the first person who was uh, inoculated with the vaccine in Canada uh, succumbed to the virus herself. Uh, mm-hmm. She was a resident of a long-term care facility, as you mentioned, uh, David, and uh, 89 years old, Gisèle Levaque, uh, obviously French-Canadian. Uh, that was back on the 14th of December, and she's just coming out of her mandatory two-week quarantine after having succumbed to the virus uh, the theory is that she was not, uh, she didn't have the antibodies built up yet after the vaccine, uh, yeah. because as we know, there's the two shots, um, at least for this this round of vaccines. So that was, that's interesting and, and not, um, again, you and I will read that and understand the nuance, um, but many people will see that and be like, oh, the first person who's vaccinated uh, got it anyway. Yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> so for all the, uh, for all the tin hatters and conspiracy theorists out there, no. That doesn't mean that the vaccine does, is not effective. We know that it's effective. The trial showed that it was effective. Uh, it does mean that she didn't have enough time to fully develop the antibodies from the first shot. However, it is important to note that her symptoms were, from what I understand. Now, I'm not the um, I'm I'm not the most astute uh, reader in French, um, but it is being considered that it's likely that the the antibodies that she did have helped her symptoms remain fairly mild, um, which is important because- So it could have been a lot worse. Yeah, these older people are are the ones who are really getting it bad and are on ventilators and sometimes pass away. And so um, that's a, for me, it's a hopeful sign that she got the vaccine and- no, it didn't prevent her from getting COVID because she didn't have a long enough gap. And obviously she hadn't got her second shot yet, but it did help. It, it did help keep those, um, those symptoms down. And that has to be celebrated too, because if you could, I mean, if we could minimize the symptoms of COVID for everyone. So imagine if that was all the vaccine could do, that would still be positive because it would be, it would mean that we wouldn't be having um, people with long-term side effects after the fact they wouldn't be be on ventilators we wouldn't need these field hospitals we'd be able to essentially downgrade covid um to something that's uncomfortable but not fatal and doesn't Um, turn around or or turn inside out all of our economies and societies yeah and ability to travel yeah so So, interesting stuff in canada corner Uh, there's an article from the times that i saw the times of new york uh, yes. That apparently a lot of medical workers uh, who are both in hospitals and these long-term care facilities are not taking uh, the vaccine, and they're very skeptical. And, yeah, that uh, bothers me. And a lot of the employers at these uh, various chains or hospitals are offering all kinds of incentives. And uh, I heard this one. Uh, this is definitely something that would work in the South. Uh, they were offering things like cash, extra time off, and yes, you heard it here. Waffle House gift cards. Oh yes, I would take that. I love me. I love me a good Waffle House. Prick me, Johnny. Um, yeah, I'm actually. I'm, I'm actually not opposed. I'm not opposed to compensation um, as like a carrot um, 
to help push us over the edge. I am a little irritated that you have health professionals who don't want to take it. Obviously, at the end of the day, it is their choice. Um, but there are larger questions. I mean, this is one of those things. Global pandemics is like a, one of those things that really test your um, your commit your convictions in regards to what is and isn't appropriate for the government to do. Yeah. Um, so I don't I don't want to be forcing people to take a vaccine at gunpoint. I don't think anybody's actually proposed that. Um, but I do think it's really misguided for health professionals to not take the vaccine. And um, I mean, our one of our friends of the show, Dr. Jeff Singer, actually just got his uh, his second dose. And so uh, he is um, he's feeling good. He has the antibodies and give it a couple of weeks and he will be um, likely uh, immune from ever from contact con- contracting the virus again. And so uh, I'm sure he I'm sure if we had him on now, he would probably have some coarse words to say for those naysayers. Well, you're listening to Consumer Choice Radio here on the Big Talker 106.7 FM. Uh, we are going to get to the big news of the week. And uh, rather than doing it in your normal way, uh, this is obviously uh, being broadcast on conservative talk radio. You probably heard a good amount of opinions all week. I know that uh, the phones were lighting up there at the Wilmington studio going crazy and insane. Uh, but let's, let's um, start off with a soft touch. Uh, we're going to play a clip that will give us a little bit of the intro here uh, so we can see it through someone else's eyes. And it is um, obviously the well-known political commentator, Lana Del Rey. So I just want to talk about a couple of things. Um, Some of the articles that are coming out today about me thinking that Trump didn't mean to incite the riots. I think it's cute that that's the little takeaway that Complex gets from that. And um, especially with our relationship over the last 10 years, obviously completely disregarded. And the other bigger magazines, that goes for you as well. I th- I get it. I have something to say, and I don't just show up giggling and talking about my hair and my makeup. I was asked directly political questions for over 40 minutes by the BBC Radio 1, and I answered them. You know, and I said, when someone is so deeply deficient in empathy, they may not know that they're the bad guy. And that may be a controversial opinion, but don't make the controversy that the controversy that I don't think that he meant to incite a riot. It's it's not the point is what I was saying. The general so point real is the quick, why. I'll, I'll pause. I don't know if you heard about this at all, but uh, I didn't. I didn't. But I can only assume what the headlines were afterwards. Lana Del Rey right. getting ripped, saying, uh, yeah. you know, Trump didn't know what he was doing and uh, everyone calling her, you know, right wing, which, you know, if you're in the popular music business, uh, there's nothing more toxic than being uh, right wing outside a country, obviously. But uh <laughs> very bad there's i mean there's a the clip is much longer um and she she does talk about sort of the media angle of this and she's she's quite pissed at the media understandably um uh, so yeah that, that's a softer way to i think intro this topic david but uh, we're just yeah. a few days from president donald trump having been impeached for a second time yes um, due to the storming of the capitol and the rhetoric surrounding that and the rally uh stop the steel rallies whoop i think we just got deplatformed yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah so, everything that's in yeah, yeah, Here's a question for you, Yael. If you were, if you were um, Congressman Yael Asoski representing North Carolina's second district or whatever, I'm making the district up, whatever district, and you are in Congress and you are faced with this vote for impeachment, what is your vote? I know what my vote would be, uh, and I can explain it. I can also explain maybe some of my issues with the wording of the impeachment process, but uh, I'd love to hear what your take is. Yeah, I think, uh, and this is something that I wrote about um, over on our website and on Inside Sources. I this is easily, uh, this is a very easy vote. Uh, mm-hmm. There are there were 10 Republicans who did vote in favor of impeaching uh, the president and the independent uh, representative of the second district of North Carolina, Yael Osowski, likely would have voted the same. Mm-hmm. I, I certainly thought the first impeachment trial, which we discussed ad nauseum earlier in the, uh, I guess, when we started the show about a year ago, yeah. uh, you know, there's all kinds of, of strange things there. But, you know, really, it's up to the Congress to come up with articles of impeachment. If they do it, they do it. You know, we can talk about if it was uh, right or wrong. But they have that prerogative within the Constitution. 
Uh, I'm happy that people are using the Constitution and we're citing it all the time. <laughs> I think that's yes. a kind of a win because there's a lot of stuff that we could probably eradicate uh, that if we follow the letter of the law. So I'd definitely vote yes. I think there's a, a lot of uh, crazy rhetoric and things that were said and uh, you know there are murmurs that many uh, GOP representatives were getting death threats and things like this if they did not vote against impeachment. Uh, it's a very toxic time. If you thought uh, the whole era of Trump being the central force uh, in American politics, you know, it still ain't over. And I don't think mm -hmm. it will be no. for at least a couple months. Yeah, and I'm in the same boat. I would have voted yes. Um, I actually wish that the wording of the impeachment documents was not on incitement, but rather something along the lines of dereliction of duty. Um, to make a better argument that the president failed in the various things that um, he did in the lead up to the riots. And then while the riots were occurring, whether that be delaying um, the disposal, delaying the disbursement of additional officers, um, kind of fanning the flames and saying that these, these, the one perpetuating the lie um, to fuel these folks that that the election was stolen, which of course it was not, um, or that it could and, be remedied by you know interrupting the process of certifying the electoral uh, college vote. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's just like that is some banana republic stuff. So whether you call it dereliction of duty or abuse of power, I think that that would probably be much more. Um, much more fitting and accurate because it fully encompasses the totality of the situation. And I've listened to some legal scholars basically say that if they were to hold this in air quotes trial uh, in the Senate, it's it, they have a much higher bar to meet with incitement um, than they do other items that they could have attempted to impeach him on. But um, we'll see whether that goes uh, that goes further after he's in office. I don't really know. There are some people who are saying don't do it because it's going to make things worse. But at the same time, there are Republican congressmen and women who voted for impeachment and were on Fox or were on CNN shortly after and said, I know that this is going to irritate some of my voters. I've already received threats on my life and my family because of how I voted, which is obviously unacceptable, but they did it anyway. Um, and so I think that they deserve, I mean, one uh, individual who stands out to me is, um, I think it, his last name is Major. It's Meyer. It's Meyer. 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 Yeah. He is actually the replacement for Congressman Justin Amash. Um, and so in um, true Michigan third district fashion, he has done the right thing and kind of carried the banner that Amash had 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 carried for so long and so kudos to to him for doing the right thing yeah, in this peter, moment peter meyer uh That's combat it. veteran mm -hmm. um brand new i mean the guy the guy's been in office you know all of like a week and a half yeah uh, so interact another one of note is adam kissinger uh who's yeah, a he's, republican from he's from great. illinois he's he's terrible on basically every other policy <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he, I don't agree with him on on much policy stuff. He he very much fits into like the Liz Cheney category. Like, I think it's great that she voted for impeachment and she stood her ground here. I think that like her foreign policy views are reprehensible. Um, I think she's got a lot of problematic um, viewpoints that just really like strike me at my core. But she had the fortitude to do the right thing. And so credit where credit is due. Yeah. I mean, everyone's doing it for their own reasons. Um, I, I don't like the rhetoric of many of the Democratic legislators who are saying that, you know, this was a coup attempt. And uh, I mean, there's all types of stuff that is not being really it's not being criticized because there is so much focus and a lot of unique bad on the part of mm -hmm. the president, uh, which I understand. I don't like either the whataboutism of many of the Republicans who are uh, against the impeachment of Trump. Uh, equating him to uh, Democrats who, you know, put out a positive tweet about uh, the early civil and uh, social justice protests. Uh, I don't, yeah. I don't, there's yep. not an equation there because you're talking about someone who's a president versus, uh, and people are actually citing media figures like, well, Anderson Cooper on CNN said X, why don't we impeach him? So well, it doesn't, 
he's not accountable to well if you were in the, the congress of, of cnn like go ahead yeah, yeah. i mean if you're a shareholder go go for it i mean you can it's you like can oh, try these numbers the these numbers are going through the roof anderson say it yeah. again yeah there's um, uh there's there's a lot of craziness there on on either side again i we all hoped and wished that with a successful election some of this would go away It'll continue on. Uh, for us, well, it's, it's and, just a bit sad because there's so many other things that could be happening legislatively to improve the lives of you and me and all other consumers, but it ain't being done. No, and, and I will quote uh, my late grandmother for those who are engaging in whataboutism and for those listening, um, I'm waving my finger at the same time. And, and she would say, you know, David, two wrongs, they don't make a right. Um, and so pointing out that maybe other figures were wrong in their uh, cheerleading for um, the riots and looting of things like Target and, and other businesses and lighting of fires and the, the Chaz or the Chad or whatever it was called uh, on the West Coast. Um, those politicians or anchors or media figures can be wrong and Trump can be wrong at the same time just because they did it doesn't mean that the president of the United States gets a free pass. Um, so I uh, hope you appreciated my, uh, my, my old Bulgarian grandmother's wisdom in, in rebutting those, uh, those whataboutists. Duh, duh. Week of whataboutism. <laughs> yes. All right. Well, with that, we'll, uh, we'll move right to our interview um, with our guest. So, Jamie, if you could uh, play that interview with Andrew Donaldson. Hard, hard worker every day. I'm a hard, hard worker. I'm working every day. I'm a hard, hard worker, and I'm saving all my pay. If I ever get some money, by the way. And welcome back to Consumer Choice Radio here on The Big Talker, 106.7 FM, every single Saturday, 10 a.m. Eastern. Uh, we're delighted to have our next guest, Obviously a big talker favorite, uh, but someone that we have not yet had on our program. We're speaking with Andrew Donaldson. He's the managing editor of Ordinary Times Magazine, ordinary-times.com. Uh, he is a veteran of several things, and uh, he is the purveyor of the hashtag Twitter Supper Club. All around amazing follow, a great guy to have on the program. Very good insight into not only what's happening uh, locally uh, in North Carolina, but places like Virginia, around the country. He's, a, he's a, a man of the world. So, Andrew, thanks so much for coming on the program. I'm thrilled to be with you. Thank you so much. So, yeah, let's just uh, give a, a small intro for many of our listeners. Um, I know that you are a familiar voice on The Big Talker. Uh, you speak with Joe a good amount. Uh, but I wanted to, to have you on here as well and uh, hear your story. So tell us Ordinary Times, magazine, writing. Uh, you got a little bit of an accent that's familiar to North Carolinians, <laughs> but maybe not to other people. So uh, sure. tell us your story. I got, um, I got a little – I've lost most of my accent, actually. I go home. It takes about three days for everybody to understand me again. Uh, but I'm actually originally from West Virginia, and then uh, by way of active duty military service, I wound up uh, living in Europe two different times and some other places. So my accent has changed a bit, but uh, that's that's the accent. It's uh, West Virginia. If I go home for two days and go to Walmart two or three times, we're back to hollers and hills and yonders and up yonder and then folks over yonder and that sort of thing. Uh, so that's the accent. Uh, I've been with Ordinary Times for about three years now. Uh, it's not mine. It's actually been around a long time. Ordinary Times has been around in its present form on the website about 12 years uh, and it goes back even further than that to the early blog discussion board type days of the internet. Uh, a lot of names, people that follow opinions uh, would see in the alumni list of the, of the website, even though it's very small, folks that now work at New York Times, now write for Forbes. Uh, we've got people that have written for the Atlantic, places like this. So it's, it's one of those smaller sites that really punches above their weights and has a wide variety of viewpoints. And we have great people and I appreciate people checking it out. I got to writing about uh, three years ago after I had a, a health situation where I wasn't working a quote unquote real job, even though I work about 16 hours a day, it seems like doing this stuff. But, um, uh, and I started uh, social media and writing as an outlet. And then uh, Will Truman, who's the uh, editor in chief of ordinary times gave me an opportunity to uh, he, the immortal words of, hey, do you want to write something sometime? And that kind of ended up to me doing just a little bit of everything now. So I don't think he knew what he was getting into, but I'm very grateful for the opportunity. And it's, it's been a blessing to have that outlet. And it's led to other things like being on uh, the Big Talker and meeting people like you. And uh, it's, it's a great thing to be productive in the world, not just being a spectator of the world. It's a blessing. 
And man, I, I hate to take you down because that was such a positive <laughs> intro and a good way to do it. Uh, but something I wanted to highlight are some of your recent articles and takes. Uh, I don't think you you hold back. I think uh, that's something that a lot of a lot of the readers there definitely love, and I hope uh, our listeners too. Uh, there's I, I guess there's a there's something about a peach uh, last couple of days here. I guess <laughs> there's an impeachment that happened, uh, a whole storming of the Capitol. Uh, you, you've given a little bit of commentary there on the on the website. You've had some great articles that we'll link to, uh, but tell us what you think. I mean, we're only what couple days. We're two weeks into January, and yeah. uh, we're, we're almost you know <laughs> we're almost just like this small speck of time, and that's mm. so much insanity. To give us your take on kind of how it's been the last two weeks. I it, it's interesting because when it happened, uh, about halfway through that, I had to get in the car and go somewhere with my fifteen uh, year old daughter. Um, so I was actually watching it with her, which was an interesting perspective to have and not just my own. And, uh, the last time we had been in the, the Capitol building itself, the rotunda was actually for George HW Bush's lying in state. I, uh, took my two youngest children and we went to that. I thought it was one of those events that don't happen very often the way politics go now. I don't think we'll ever have an event quite like that again, where you have a, a almost universally respected president like that. I was like, we need to go to this. So their last memories of the Capitol building is that event, this wonderful thing of community and the country coming together and people. Um, and then I've got to sit there and talk to my 15-year-old daughter where she's going, well, dad, that's where you took us for the funeral. That's that's where they lay people that we're honoring. Why, why are they in there? Why are they doing this? And they're not super political. I keep my private life very separate from this stuff. So it was, it was a very jarring moment. Then for me personally, it was just a lot of anger. And I don't mean internet reaction anger. I mean deep, righteous, seething, love of my country type stuff that I would have to go back about 20 years to get something that made me that angry again. Uh, so it's it's been a process of working through it myself and then also trying to put my, my writer filters on it of, okay, we need to be fair. We need to get the truth of things and those sorts of things. It's, it's been difficult because I love my country. I wore the uniform for 12 years before I couldn't anymore. So there, there's a lot of emotions that go into those images, just like for a lot of people. And then I talked to my friends overseas, uh, talked to friends that um, aren't Americans, and hearing their replies were just heartbreaking. And you're over in, you're over there, so maybe you can uh, touch on that a little bit more. But I, it's one of the few times in my adult life, I'm 40 years old now, that um, I really felt like I had to explain and defend my own country. And that's not a very comfortable place for me to be in at all, because I'm proud of my country. Yeah, that's it. definitely just to give the the small European perspective. Uh, it's a bit difficult because a most of these countries don't have um, impeachments. B yes. they don't really have division in government like we do in the states. Um, you know, between the legislative, executive branches, and judicial. Uh, so that you know the the sort of the sanctity of all of that, no one really understands that part. No, and you know I think uh, what people do understand obviously is um, large crowds, totalitarianism. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yep. So they, they understand plenty of that. Yeah. And yeah. on the uh, on the Canadian side, what's funny is, so if you're reading Canadian media, I mean, it's very much just like, how is this even possible? How? Yes. Uh, obviously, the the conduct of the president and some of his associates in the lead up, but then logistically, like, how is that even? remotely possible in um in the capital building of the most powerful country in the world but on the polarization side and like the nature of politics uh, it's interesting because just this week a liberal uh, member of parliament which is uh, equivalent of a congressman and a conservative member of parliament actually co-authored a op-ed in one of the national newspapers basically saying okay well we've seen now polarization kind of boil over um, not far from home, and we need to do whatever we can to keep things civil and to keep things uh, above board so that we don't inherit these um, instances of hyperpolarization, which now we know can be very quickly mobilized into some pretty ugly uh, and horrific uh, outcomes. So uh, I, I think from the Canadian side, people are looking at this and going, one, how did that happen? And two, okay, maybe let's tone the heat down when we talk to each other um, in parliament or uh, in the media, because we're all better off if we do that. And it's a lot easier to avoid some of these ugly outcomes. Yeah. 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 And uh, 
don't don't become the U.S. is essentially the Canadian media nowadays. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, we it's it's interesting on our part um, from the American side of it is there there's really been two schools of thought in it, and I I think a lot of people shared this that watched the news of this is utterly shocking and utterly predictable, and it's those two things at the same time that were very it's a very unusual thing in a news event where usually something comes out of the middle of nowhere or something that happens that you're prepared for. And this really was the mix of both. You have the initial revulsion of the imagery you see. And then there's, then as soon as you have about five minutes to think about it and you start thinking about like, Oh yeah, this has been coming Uh, too many people, too much stoking uh, something like this. There was going to be a boiling point where the pressure cooker pops off and the steam comes out at some point. I don't think anybody imagined it was going to be that. But it's a very unique thing to our times where how many news stories now over the last few years, those of us that do American politics and culture, um, how many news stories now do we say that same thing now? Like, this is really shocking and not surprising at all at the same time over and over and over again. So to what David's saying, I think that's where the temperature comes down. Parts like when we start seeing stories that we react to, I think that needs to be the warning sign for us to kind of start okay, time to stop and reevaluate. Because if we're saying that about a news story, if you say that about four, five, six news stories in a row, you're going to be in a really ugly, bad place in a big hurry that you don't want to be in. Yeah, and you called it the uh, high watermark of MAGA, uh, so you, you uh, definitely pulled some punches there. And you know, the I think for a lot of people who are able to do this full time, you know, sort of being able to write and read and, and understand. We just have a very different perspective in that we understand that there are nuances uh, that go into certain things, you know, things politicians will say or something that pops up on the news. Here, it was like really hard uh, to try to pick any nuance, right? It was just doors coming down, invasion of a, of a, of a space. It was, uh, it was really next level. I think you, you covered that very well in your, in your writing in the article um, that this was a long time coming. I, I'm careful with imagery when I go to go to places like that, but you know, the high watermark thing for, you know, you hate to explain something to it, but I feel like I need to because it's such a a vast imagery. Um, In American history, the high watermark comment, and I actually ripped off Faulkner and just rebuilt it for the, for the capital assault in the piece. And you can read it. Uh, I'll link it to my social media when this comes out. Uh, the high they they talk about Gettysburg being the high water mark of the Confederacy. It, Pickett's charge was doomed to fail. They did it anyway, and that was the high water mark. That's the reference. And then there's the Faulkner quote from uh, Strangers in the Dust, uh, where he talks about, well, for every Southern boy, it's you know it's not noon yet, and I'm I'm going to paraphrase it because my brain I can't remember it all. It's not noon yet, and the flags haven't been unfurled yet, and and we can still win, and been, and we've got a chance. And, and it's really kind of been the bulwark of the lost cause for, for you know, two generations now. Um, my fear is that's kind of what that became. It became the, the people that completely had just lost their mind, like, oh, yeah, we're going we're gonna to take this raised position of democracy with a few thousand people, and this is going to work. And it was destined to fail. And not only fail, but be a catastrophic failure. And needless death and now we have images of a police officer being beaten to death on the steps of the united states capitol so to use imagery like that and i toned it down quite a bit from what it could have been probably um i mean it to be that strong because that's where we're at we have people now who legitimately you just cannot deal with abstract facts with them they are just utterly convinced and i i don't have a good clean answer and a 30 second soundbiter and a thousand piece thousand word piece on how to fix that but that's where they were and that's why i went to that imagery because that's the kind of mentality you're dealing with here now and you, you've written about conspiracy theories as well and, and sort of how they've propagated and, and how they really just don't end up uh in, in a neat uh, bow most of the time wow. uh how do you kind of see us going from here because uh, there's there's plenty of theories being spun out there i mean i'm hearing uh i'm hearing yeah. that uh, there's going to be this some huge operation by trump uh, at the inauguration they're taking over satellites they're going to announce a new government i mean all <laughs> kinds of stuff yeah uh, the the problem with conspiracy theories all always is the good conspiracy takes a kernel of truth and then blows it up into the big thing so when i'm watching the news right now i'm watching folks that really we saw it in congress during the debate yesterday they want to focus down on one little tidbit of this thing, like, like, oh, well, when you supported an, 
you know, violence in the street or when you did this and they'll bear down on this one little thing and then they're going to use that to blow that back up to excuse everything. That's how you start getting conspiracy stuff. Um, honestly, uh, as far as President Trump goes, I don't think there's a, as much planning in what he does as people give it credit for. I think he's just a reactionary person for the most part. And then people try to go to things to explain his reactionaryism. And that's where you get more conspiracy. I don't, President Trump, with all due respect, he, he doesn't understand how our government works. He doesn't understand how the military works. He doesn't understand how, especially doesn't understand how the uh, intelligence services work that would actually do stuff like that. But there's people attached to him and that can use his cause that do understand those things. So you got to be vigilant about it. But as usual, conspiracy theories uh, fall to the same thing everything else does. You got to get to the truth, even if that makes you look bad, even if that hurts. If you cling to the truth, you're at least going to have a fighting chance against some of this stuff. So we need to pursue the truth first and then let the rest of the stuff start falling where it falls. Yeah, it's one of those things where for me, it was always like, you know, you know that there has to be an intelligent person in the room with Trump to explain the ramifications of his actions to say, hey, this is this is what may happen or this is what could happen when you say these things. And so I don't know if he just internally rules with such an iron fist where dissent is not possible or alternative viewpoints are not possible, but it is incredibly depressing that no one apparently no one until now after the fact you have some people resigning which some have argued is just kind of window dressing uh, no one was able to get through to him and, and you didn't you, you weren't uh, with us on the program when we talked about this but Lana Del Rey um, who may or may not be a astute political commentator <laughs> she's uh, top notch she's hired next yeah. next uh, next uh, radio show she's on yeah but she's yeah, better I mean, looking than with Hannity let's go with it so, yeah. So she she basically said, like, I mean, there's a there's a real possibility that Trump is just not aware of the consequences of his actions. And he doesn't have the self-awareness to comprehend, like, the linear path of from A to B. And I know you write about the, the cultural side of this. And and so on that note, I'm curious as to what happens next. So I think some people on the Democratic side or the more of the, let's say, never Trump um, or sane side of the Republican Party, as I would frame it, um, thought that maybe, okay, maybe this is the end. Maybe this is the end. But then as of yesterday, um, Congresswoman Green Taylor saying she's going to bring up articles impeachment of yeah. Biden on, on her first day in, or, or whenever she can, his first day in office. And it just seems like uh, it seems like we've hopped on this train and we can't get off. And I don't know if you have any insight as to what what could be next or how how does how does the multi how does the, a, a two party system function with such radicalization comprising now a minority or a, a somewhat minority, I think, of your average Republican voter. But um, where do we go from here? Yeah, two things there I want to hit on the two party system. I'll come back to in just a second because that's part of it. The, the, the first part of this is culturally. Normally what happens in politics is when you have a change of presidency, there's a coalition of the people that are out of power who kind of take a minute, they reform, and then the new president becomes the new big bad, and they kind of put their own stuff aside because in opposition, they can just all throw, st throw stones at the guy that's on top, and they kind of reconstitute and go on. You see that when we went from uh, President Bush to President Obama. All of a sudden, President Bush couldn't get on a Republican stage if he paid for it. Uh, nobody wanted anything to do with him, but everybody just forgot most of that and moved on, and they were against President Obama. President Obama leaves office. President Trump comes in. Now the Republicans are in charge. So the, the, the Democrats, they kind of put aside a lot of their stuff, and they all come out against Trump, and even more so because of the, the person and the nature of President Trump. I had thought, and I had written, and I've said this publicly, I had assumed that we would have something similar to that again. President Trump would leave office. The Republicans would recoalesce against, now we know it's President Biden, we didn't know then, and uh, Kamala Harris is the vice president, and they're going to just recoalesce and attack the two of them. So that, that was the concern, and I thought they would do that. I'm cons and that's a healthy thing, by the way. I'm not knocking it. That's how it should be. They Okay, let's put away the old thing. Let's move to the new thing. My concern now after the events of the last week where you have 140 congressmen who, and, and I get they don't vote against the impeachment, but I'm talking more about 
their speeches, not the actual. And I listened to almost all of them yesterday. I'm not talking about just the vote against the impeachment. I can justify that. They, the speeches they gave, I, you're going to have this remnant, and I hate to say lost cause again because of the connotation, so understand how I'm meaning it. There, there's going to be this lost cause group for Trump that's just never going to convince he wasn't cheated and we weren't robbed, and they're going to cling to that. How big is that number? Is it, we used to call it the shoot, shoot someone on Fifth Avenue. Remember all that, that logic? Well, that's who we're down to now. We've got to shoot somebody on Fifth Avenue that's happened they went down you know pennsylvania avenue and attacked the capitol it's a little different but that's where we're at is that 25 percent? is that 30 percent of the republican party is that 35 percent? i'm afraid you're going to have that amount and if that happens and there isn't a coalition against the republican party you're going to have uh, a split faction the second part of what you're saying is the two-party system you talked about parliament earlier um yeah i'll talk about uh, european systems we have a two-party system. We have a two-party dominant system, but we don't have two strong parties. Those are two very different things. These parties are not strong. If these parties were strong, Donald Trump would have never become a nominee in the president, and Joe Biden would not be president right now. Remember, Joe Biden was dead in the water in the primaries, and, his, and the base, especially the African-American base and the more centrist Democrats, rose up as one and kind of put down the more progressive left and, and put Biden in power. Um, the, our parties are not strong parties. They're very weak parties because they get co-opted and taken over. So to say that we have a two-party system, that's true, but our two-party two system is not a strong one. And, and, the, and the one other thing I'd say about that is people always talk about a third party. Well, we already have two other political parties in America. We have independents who is growing because the, the sides are, the, the extremes are shrinking and it's pushing more people towards the middle. And then we have a fourth. Remember, even we had record turnout in this election. We still have a vast amount of people that do not vote or participate in politics in America. You know, a shocking number. In 2016, uh, if you took all the people that voted but did not vote for president, they probably that group would have won the presidency and the electoral college both. It was that many people that did it. I've wrote about that before. So we really have four political parties, and they're all insanely weak and decentralized. How do you fix that? That's a generational problem. That's not something we're going to fix in two, three years, three years. It's flaws too big of a term, but it's just an aspect of our system that uh, our political parties right now are a lot more personality based than they are principle based. And that's just going to be the reality. And so my thought on that is maybe we better pay a lot more attention to the character of the people we put in charge, contra what we just saw, because that's going to be the overriding factor, not the political party they're attached to. You're listening to Consumer Choice Radio here on the Big Talker, 106.7 FM. We're speaking with Andrew Donaldson, managing editor of Ordinary Times Magazine. Uh, we hit all we hit all the negative stuff. I think we, uh, we, yeah. we did the check marks. We did everything else. Uh, let's turn to some more positive stuff. Uh, definitely, that's something that you focus on a lot on uh, your Twitter page, on any of your social media. Uh, you can follow Andrew, by the way, at four spelled out, then the number four, the fire. <laughs> we'll link it as well. It's a lot easier, but yeah, tell us some positive stuff um, sort of that you've been focusing on or, or highlighting. Um, obviously you're a, a man who's uh, been around the world and you understand a bit what's happening uh, in, in other places, but then you're also picking up on, on other threads of, I guess, uh, happy news that many of our people uh, certainly listening now probably haven't heard. Yeah. There, there's, there's still good things going on in the world. Um, I, I think one nice thing about we're seeing with the social media stuff, and we were we were talking about it off air, uh, you you really get to see people expanding their worlds with news and social media. Um, obviously, we're sitting in three different countries doing this right now, and it's going to air in a city, a radio station that none of the three of us are even in. That's really cool stuff, man. I, I grew up in the 80s, man. The, the, in my family, if we had a family reunion, the youngest had to go outside to the antenna and turn the antenna to get the channel in just right. And somebody had to stand on the porch to relay the shouts of all the people in front of the TV. And I'm only 40 years old. That wasn't that long ago. You know, we got two channels, three if it was storming. You know, that it, it's a cool time to be alive, man. Check it out. You know, we I can get online right now. Uh, we talk about this cultural stuff. If there's somebody of another race or another culture or another religion or or whatever it will be that you don't you're not exposed to because where you live, hey, you can go on Twitter and talk to them right now today. They're on there and you can make friends with them and you can do these sorts of things. That That's a big positive. Um, I think we get caught up in the news of the day a little bit and we forget how 
good we have it lifestyle-wise compared to most of the rest of the world and just about anybody in recorded human history. Uh, so I can do stupid things like go online and just, you know, talk about food all day, or I can write a 1800 word piece on how I ripped my pants walking into a mobile MRI truck because I got an MRI in a tractor trailer. Think about that technology, you know, just stuff like that. I, 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 I try hard in my writing. I fail a lot of the days, but, and I encourage other people, you know, find the positive with it because it was just negative, negative, negative. You wind up in a bad spot. And, and, and this is a really amazing, we aren't, we aren't bored are we with the news of the day as bad and bleak as it is, you know, these are interesting times and we can say we live through them and, and we have the technology to record what we did and how we reacted to them. I think that's a pretty positive thing. Yeah. These are not ordinary times, are they? Nice. See how you did that. See, everybody thinks it's a Catholic thing. And, and the story I was really, fun. they, I wasn't there when they did, they spent about a year trying to figure out what the name was because it, the original listing was the league of ordinary gentlemen. And then when they brought it off the listings and they wanted to make it the website, obviously you needed to be a little more inclusive. So they're trying to figure out, well, well now what do we call it? It was a, you know, a play off the, the comics, of course. Um, so that's how that happened. And, but ever since then it's been dogged with like, is that a Catholic thing? Like ordinary time, you know, not that sort of thing. So it's pretty funny, but uh, we're proud of it. And I, I hope people do check it out. Um, it's going to be a lot of stuff. You don't, I tell people all the time, I probably, I'm probably the editor that approves more stuff I disagree with than anybody. That's the way it should be. I want to be challenged in my thinking. So it's good people and good stuff. And I hope folks check it out. Just fantastic. A, a rare light, a rare beacon. Yeah. Yeah. Especially given all the conversations in editorial rooms now. I mean, Yael and I chatted about this. It feels, I don't know how long ago it was because time is just a blur right now. But the New York Times and the pushing out of their opinion editor for publishing Tom Cotton despite the fact how that bad the, does that look now <laughs> yeah uh i mean despite the fact that yes tom cotton i find particularly objectionable and i didn't really like his argument but i mean it's the it's supposed to be the nas- national newspaper of record you shouldn't fire your editor because a u.s sitting u.s senator um and at the time <laughs> prospective supreme court no- nominee uh wrote an op-ed but uh on, on another positive note, I would love to hear your take as a as a um, as a son of the mountain state. Yes, um, I was hoping I, you'd get to this. Yeah, so I wrote, um, admittedly, as an outsider, I have been to West Virginia. I've stayed in West Virginia. I like West Virginia, um, but very much as an outsider about what West Virginia had done right in regards yes. to ensuring that. Um, those at risk, primarily people in, in care homes, were vaccinated. And I just love an insider's view as to what's worked, what hasn't, why, how did West Virginia of all states seem to figure it out? Yeah, it's amazing. And I caught y'all's uh, show last week and you did a great job of it. I appreciate it very much. Um, it, it's amazing because West Virginia's governor, Jim Justice, before the COVID thing had been, I'll be nice and call him an absentee governor. Uh, he was going to win re-election, but he, he, he literally, we could not get him into the capital city of Charleston to save our life for three and a half years. Uh, and then all of a sudden the vaccine comes and this guy has turned into super efficiency. It's the most amazing thing you've ever seen. I don't, for, to visualize for the viewers, Jim Justice is about six, four, six, five and about 360, I think he's not a small dude. So he, he very much lumbers when he does things and he lumbers when he does policy as well often. Uh, but man, they've been killing it. Now there's a couple things here. Um, I don't have the number in front of me, but uh, West Virginia is one of the oldest populations of the 50 states. It's one of the highest, if not the highest, in what we would call um, in European and Canadian terms, pensioners, uh, to use the UK term. Folks that are retired, folks that are on disability, folks that are on government assistance as their primary means of income. I think we're always one of the top. Uh, my state is actually demographically bleeding to death. Uh, we're getting ready to lose one of our three congressional districts, actually the third district, my home district. We will be losing that when they do realignment here in the spring. Uh, so it's very much an elderly state, an older state, and a declining population state. The perverse advantage to that, however, is that you have something that's really rare in America where public health is actually the primary means of care for most of these people, which is unusual in the United States. So they hit the care homes quickly. They already have a database for a vast majority of the population because they're already on Social Security or they're already on Medicare, Medicaid, or they're already on some kind of government assistance. So the communication barriers to get a hold of these people was, was 
a lot faster than a lot of people. One thing we don't talk about in, in medical stuff, and the reason we call our website culture and politics, um, my background is actually in logistics, and we always talk about the last mile in logistics. Amazon people, anybody orders Amazon, that's from the distro center to your house, the last mile. That's the hard part because that's where all the variables are. Weather, somebody ain't home, the address ain't right, we can't find it. Your house doesn't have the right street name on it, this sort of thing. That goes in politics, last mile. How do you get it from theory and what I write on a website to somebody's head before they go vote? Medicine has a last mile, and that's what we're seeing with this vaccine, last mile of it's being the problem. Well, the last mile in West Virginia was actually pretty easy because they already know all these people and they already know how to reach them. And there's a cultural aspect to it. If I go to, I lived in Germany two different times. I've been in a patient in a German hospital. If I go on a street corner in Germany and ask anybody, where do I go to the doctor? Just the doctor, where do I get medical care? Almost all of them would be able to tell me because it's a nationalized health system. If I go to a street corner in Omaha and say, where can I go to the doctor? I may get somebody's primary care. I may get told an urgent care. I may get told an ER or whatever. And I'm not advocating for universal health care. I'm just, it's just a cultural thing. The culture in West Virginia is a culture that was predisposed to public health. The government stepped up from being, frankly, I've been a big critic of the governor. He really stepped up his game and got this done to his credit. So there's all those things that went into it. And, and for once, we're number one in something. And it's really nice to see. In fact, my, I was just talking to my dad. Um, my dad's 74. He got his notice on when his vaccine date was going to come on January the 4th. So he's known since January 4th what day he was going to go get vaccinated. Um, he got, Incredible. and he's a pensioner. Yeah, they're retired. My parents are both retired school teachers. He's on PEIA. That's the public insurance for West Virginia State employees. Uh, biggest insurer in the state. Um, he got told on January 4th, you're getting your first dose vaccine on this date. He's known. In fact, I think it's uh, tomorrow, if I remember correctly. So that it's that sort of thing that uh, the cultural aspect of medicine doesn't get talked about enough. But when you get down to the last mile of a vaccine deliver, it's everything. It's absolutely everything. Being able to reach these people, find these people. Um, and I really appreciate people highlighting it. And I'm really glad our family's being taken care of back home. And, and what role did partnering with local and regional pharmacies play in kind of capturing that cultural um, aspect that you mentioned? Because I mean, when I hear you say that, it sounds like a no brainer to me. But then when I yeah. heard um, Dr. Clay Marsh, who is, I think his title is the COVID czar, which I found yes. perplexing, but um, <laughs> he basically explained that they sidestepped warp speed. So warp speed was going to be two, two focal points, CVS and Walgreens. Um, so to have a little bit more of a dynamic system in terms of points of, of receiving the vaccine, but West Virginia uh, multiplied that by 200. Uh, sure. based on his estimates. And so what role did partnering with pharmacies play in ensuring that this was successful? Well, here you go again. You're going to get a kick out of this as a consumer choice-based outfit. Um, the West Virginia pharmacies have been in the news for the last couple of years, if you remember. Uh, West Virginia is ground zero for the opioid epidemic. It's an absolute um, friend of mine I, I grew up with is actually the district judge in, in, in a county uh, where I grew up and I was talking to him last time I was home and just, just heartbreaking stuff. What's going on with the opioid. We have a whole generation getting wiped out right now. The, 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 again, weird how things work out. Um, all the pharmacies have been on the government's radar and the state government's radar for a couple of years now. So they already had all those inroads to talk to all the pharmacies. So, and the, believe me, those pharmacies were really, really, really looking for some good press. Um, Cause a lot of them, you know, when you had one pharmacy in Oceana, getting more orders of Oxycontin than there was for people in the entire state of West Virginia. And that's a town of like 2000 people, you know, this sort of stuff. Uh, so they, there was already a relationship there, even though it had been a negative relationship. So now the state can go back to them. It was like, Hey, time to make good. Uh, each state is different. I know in Florida, they're trying to get it into the pharmacies and they're having legal and medical regulation reasons why they can't get in it. They're trying to work around it. Uh, there's other places like that. So a lot of it's legalese and things like that. Part of the reason they were going around the warp speed stuff, and you know this, whether it's a school lunch or a student loan or anything, if you're doing business with the government, it comes with regulations and strings attached. Same thing with our stimulus money. So the warp speed stuff is great, and I think it's been, and it's obviously worked. We got a vaccine in record time. There's also stuff in the fine details of that that sometimes would hinder because you can't just make a one-size-fits-all. There's always a problem. So what happened in West Virginia was to, to just nutshell it. 
Um, these pharmacies have spent a couple of years in very close contact with the government for some bad reasons, but those contacts also turned into a avenue of communication where they could reach them all immediately. And you have a, a, a business um, sector in pharmacies that was really looking for some good press. And it, you know, it worked because they're like, we can be the heroes now. We're going to save the day and get these vaccines out. And it all worked out. Nothing happens in a vacuum. So it's interesting to watch how recent history has played out in the state of West Virginia uh, to make these good things happen out of stuff that, frankly, was very bad things only a year or two ago. And now we're seeing some good come out of them, thankfully. Hey, Becky, uh, why don't you pull up the uh, opioid email list? Yeah, sure. All yeah. right, send it out. <laughs> there is, that's exactly what it was. They, 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 the, the fraud units literally pulled out the, the pharmacy list and said, here we go. Like, here's all the pharmacies. And, and like, you know, I'm not saying that people called them up and said, you owe us, but let's all be real here. That's kind of how that conversation went with a lot of those folks. And it worked yeah. and it's working and hopefully it continues to work well and other states can model it. But again, scale guys um talking about consumer choice here not all state that's not going to work in california that's not going to work in florida or a, a high population state you also have a very um you know west virginia's i have no idea what it is 97 percent white anglo christian you know there's cultural things that go into that um the state of new york the mess that that is right now that's not going to be scalable to everybody. So every state's going to have to figure out how they're going to deal with this thing. But for one, for this one thing, it sure worked out really good. Mm -hmm. and, and on that regulatory note, when you talk about the legalese, one thing when I was listening, so I was listening to uh, a podcast where the West Virginia COVID czar was on it and they asked, okay, well, what, like, what were the rules that you put in place for these pharmacies? Like what, what did they have to have? And he goes, Oh, it was really simple. They had to have super cold storage and yep. they had to have a backup generator in case the power went out so that the vaccines didn't spoil. And it was like very quickly for me, the light bulb went off, which is really what inspired me to write the op-ed that I did because I was thinking, well, okay, so they've set a very clear standard of what is needed to facilitate this. Then multiply that by the cultural aspect you mentioned, multiply that by the fact that there are communication channels that already exist and then, bam! In two weeks, um, they managed to to vaccinate um, the, the the population who is arguably at the the most risk, um, those yep. who are elderly and living um, in spaces together. And so, um, it'll be interesting to see what other states can learn from, even if it's and the, the way I look at it, even if it's regional. Um, so, look at like an older population, pick a community like Naples, Florida. Sure. Um, I would envision that something along this line uh, of what, what West Virginia did could work in some of those population centers where you have a lot of elderly people, a lot of people who um, are either on uh, government pensions or social assistance, et cetera, that we should be able to use those, um, those communication chains, which they could be for any other reason. I mean, it could, I, I don't know what um, other assistant programs look like whether it's food stamps or other provisions that are provided to people but we should be able to put our thinking caps on and say okay how what what other systems do we have here that we can piggyback off of to ensure that one people know when they're getting the vaccine and they get it quickly and it's done in a safe way and so kudos kudos to west virginia for having the guts to uh to look at this in a different way and say okay how do we best serve the residents of our state. And I mean, it's at the end of the day, if, if West Virginia can put their success, can put a little pressure on other States or Canadian provinces to, um, to get their act together, uh, that could, that could be a huge plus um, for West Virginia. Maybe, maybe, maybe we'll know West Virginia for more than the opioid uh, crisis and uh, country roads take me home. <laughs> One oh, yeah. of those two things we're really good with being known for, by the way. Um, we love country roads. And we, we've definitely adopted that. I, I actually wrote a whole piece about it myself because trying to explain it to people. So, yes, we know it's about Maryland. Don't even start. That song's ours now. Them's the rules. <laughs> We, we have it. We have it. Yeah. And, and speaking of guts, uh, I have to have the guts to, to end our convo. Uh, it's yeah. radio. It's short form. But uh, we had a great time. Great conversation all over the map. 
Uh, we've been speaking with Andrew Donaldson, managing editor of Ordinary Times Magazine, ordinary-times.com. Uh, you can also find him on the Twitter, so we'll link to that. And uh, check out the uh, hashtag Twitter Supper Club that he runs. Uh, it's, a, it's a great time. Andrew, thanks so much for coming on the program. I, I greatly appreciate you, my friends. We'll do it anytime you want to. Very much appreciate you. Beautiful. I think he's been branded a friend of the show. <laughs> Yay. <laughs> and that does it for Consumer Choice Radio here on the Big Talker, 106.7 FM. Thank you for joining us for the hour and for all the other past shows and archives. Check with Consumer Choice Radio for much more. And as always, if you are listening online through your favorite podcast app, we appreciate that. Be sure to like and subscribe to the podcast uh, and follow us on Twitter at Consumer C Radio. Uh, thanks again. I'm a hard, hard worker every day. I'm a hard, hard worker. I'm working every day. I'm a hard, hard worker and I'm saving all my pay. If I ever get some money put away, I'm going to take it all out and celebrate. I'm a hard, hard worker every day. Well, I woke up early this morn. And I woke up early this morn, morn, morn. Yeah, I woke up early this morn. And I got up early to sing. And I got up early to sing. I got I'm a